Woo, okay. Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus 35. We are going to cover Exodus 35 through 40, stopping just shy of that moment where the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle, which I've been pretty bent out of shape about because I felt like if I have to deal with the five chapters of the redundant details, at least let me have the glory. But um, Adrian gets the glory of the Lord in the next session, so... Of course, Adrian gets the glory, but uh, (laughs) unless, of course, unless, of course, I just decide to cover it today. I mean, I'm kind of like one of those, um, what is it called? Wild cards. We just don't know. So, no, uh, we will finish with Adrian's teaching on the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle. But today we are looking at five chapters of um, the Israelites' Uh, preparing and then constructing and assembling the tabernacle to get to that place where then we're going to cover the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle. This is one of those very, very, very rare moments in Israel's history where they obey God's commands perfectly. Perfectly, down to the very letter of the law, they obey God's commands. And um, I feel like, as I read these five chapters, this is truly the highlight, in many ways, of Israel's story, as we look at them fulfill and obey and give so generously and wholeheartedly in preparation for the presence of the Lord. So we all know how the story goes. We know that this is not going to last long, but today we are going to kind of sit in these chapters and enjoy these, these five minutes of fame, right, that the Israelites have as they obey the Lord perfectly in preparation for the tabernacle so that his presence can fill it and be in their midst. So the big idea today is that God's people prepare for his presence in obedience to his word. God's people prepare for his presence in obedience to his word. And we're just going to break this massive section down actually into two large chunks. First, we'll look at the preparation. That's going to be Exodus 35 through 36, verse 7. Preparation, Exodus 35 through 36, verse 7. And then secondly, their obedience. And that will be Exodus 36, 8 through chapter 40, verse 33. 36, 8 through chapter 40, verse 33. Now, because we've already covered this in so much detail, first, the first time God commands all this, right? We went through it in detail in the homework and teaching, and then we just went through it again in detail in our homework. So I'm going to cover just a couple bigger themes and draw those out, um, including some teaching on the Sabbath that I promised And so I'm going to spend the majority of the time on the first point and even a lot of that time on the first three verses. So you can mentally prepare for that however you would like, Um, but we'll be moving quite quickly through the final point. Okay, so preparation. Okay, first God's people prepare for his presence. In Exodus 35, 1 through 3, we see something interesting. God picks up right where he left off before the golden calf incident. You remember, flip back with me just a couple pages. I had ended the teaching last time I taught 
in chapter 31 and in verse 12 through 18, God gives the command to keep the Sabbath and he tells them that the Sabbath is going to be the sign of the covenant. So that's interesting. You might not know that about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic covenant. That's just food for thought. Okay, so he tells them this is going to be a covenant between you and me, and they shall keep the Sabbath. In verse 16, they shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. And then in verse 18, he says, and he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on the mountain, two tablets of testimony, of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And we think, okay, awesome. Here we go. The presence of the Lord, you know, the building of the tabernacle. Nope. He comes down, and we have the golden calf incident. And so chapters 32, the golden calf rebellion, uh, 33, the command to leave Sinai, Moses' intercession, which points to Jesus as our mediator. Moses then goes up, fast another 40 days. I said I double-checked that in my homework. I told the group that. I double-checked that because I said, tell me this man did not have to fast from water and food another 40 days. But he did. I told them, I've got to be able to fast one day. You know what I mean? Okay, so he goes up, he comes back down, and they renew the covenant. And after the covenant renewal, what happens? Verse, or chapter 35, verses 1, Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days, shall be, um, six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. So by picking up with the exact same thing um, Moses left off with before the golden calf incident, the author, Moses, as he's writing this, he's showing us God's total sovereignty over all events of human history. Yes, the golden calf rebellion was horrendous sin. Yes, the, the Israelites had to be held accountable for their sin. Yes, there was judgment, and there had to be intercession through a mediator, and then there had to be repentance and a renewal of the covenant. But ultimately, God's just picking up right where he left off. For as huge as this event was in Israel's history, this is not even a hiccup in God's redemptive purposes. Moses is showing us by the way it's structured that God is going to carry out his purposes. He's going to keep his promises regardless of humanity's sin. And what a great encouragement to all of us who feels like I've messed it up. God couldn't possibly use me again. Uh, I've gone too far. I'm in too deep. It's like, sister, you're thinking too high of yourself. Okay. God's going to keep his promises. He's going to keep his word. Yes, sin is serious. But we take heart that God will always stay true to his covenantal promises. So we get the Sabbath. And it's interesting that Moses begins the preparations to to construct and erect the, the tabernacle, not with the command to work, but with the command to rest. Did anyone else find that very interesting? It's like you kind of feel like something that's important, you just gotta jump right in, you know? But no, he, he starts with a command to rest. And he gathers all the congregation together, and he begins to explain how important it is. It's like really, really important. Like you die if you start a fire in your dwelling place, okay? 
It's that important. And that seems a little extreme. So we need to understand why. Why? What's going on with the Sabbath that it's that important that you die if you don't keep it? Well, all the instructions regarding the tabernacle before Exodus 31 and all of it repeated after Exodus 35, every tiny detail about the holy dwelling of God is is helping us understand that this place has to be a holy place for God's holy presence. But it's not just about a holy building. God's people, those people who are going to be uh, in relationship with God, must also be holy. They must be set apart. They must be sanctified. And yet, it's not the work they do that's going to sanctify them or set them apart. It's God's own sovereign choice, setting them apart and sanctifying them to be holy unto himself. And that comes across more clearly in Exodus 31 when talking about the Sabbath than here in this one. But the point is that God wanted to set apart a people unto his purposes, and he puts the Sabbath in place to remind them that it wasn't what they did or what they built that made them holy, but it was the Lord who set them apart. And by having them rest, weekly, having them stop from their labors, even really important labors, weekly, they had to stop and take stock of the fact that it was God's work, it was God's choosing that made them holy. They had to stop and remember the Lord and remember his mighty works in Egypt and remember his redeeming hand and have a day of refreshment in the presence of the Lord that they might go back into their work reinvigorated. It wasn't their work that made them holy. It was the Lord that made them holy. And the Sabbath forced them to recognize that uh, one day every week. If, If six days they forgot on the Sabbath, they needed to remember that they had been set apart by the Lord holy unto his purposes. Now, the big question for us is how do we understand the Sabbath? Because if you and I are just reading verses one through three, and if we're just gonna apply this as a one to one, you know, from the Israelites to us, the application you would have to make is that you would have to keep Saturday, not Sunday, Saturday perfectly holy. You would have to rest on Saturday in such a way that if you washed a dish, God would kill you. So do we want to apply it this way? And should we apply it this way? No. Hannah's saying no. Though, I don't know, I wouldn't mind that. Neil, I can't do the dishes. God might strike me dead. Um, But no, this is not how we understand the Sabbath in the New Testament. I don't have time to do a whole biblical theology of the Sabbath, and I really want to. So maybe on a first Thursday, we could do something like that. But the big thing to understand is that when we interpret the Sabbath, like everything else we interpret from the Old Testament, it has to travel through the cross. We do not live in the wilderness erecting a tabernacle so God's presence can dwell with us. That's not where we are. So, so what we do is we go to the New Testament and we look at the fact when Jesus comes on the scene, he says that he is actually Lord over the Sabbath. It, it, meaning that he actually doesn't have to submit to it, but he's Lord over it. He is the one who's going to finally bring the blessings of the Sabbath rest to God's people. Okay, so, so I've skipped the whole Old Testament about the Sabbath, but we'll fill that in some other time. But Jesus comes and he brings an end to human rebellion and the reign of death by living the Sabbath day perfectly for God and then dying our substitutionary 
death for atonement, and then rising from the dead, and then Jesus enters into God's rest. When Jesus ascends into heaven, what's happening is he perfectly lived the Sabbath day. He died for um, all, uh, you know, all the Old Testament ends up just being a big survey of those who abuse Sabbath, misuse Sabbath, don't keep Sabbath. It's just chronic disobedience, but not Jesus. And so he dies and rises from the dead. And then he, his ascension means he has entered God's rest. He's entered God's rest. And now those of us in the New Testament, we don't keep the Sabbath in hope Uh, of realizing that we're holy people set apart and that we're going to enter a a physical rest in a land. We don't um, keep the Sabbath. We trust Jesus who kept the Sabbath. And through faith in Jesus, we enter into God's rest. Now, I know that we didn't go into the whole land and how that was to be a rest for God's people, but it ended up not being a rest for God's people. You know why? Sin, sin, because they're sin. So they never did enter the rest. That's why in Hebrews, um, Hebrews 4.10 says, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did. The author of Hebrews is telling us that though true rest with God was not achieved in the promised land, um, there was a greater rest to come. And when Jesus comes and enters into God's rest, he now invites all of us to cease from our, um, our dead works of trying to earn God's approval, of trying to be good enough for God, of trying to work and work and work so that we might finally have peace with our creator. No, we cease from that. We believe in Jesus and we enter God's rest. So in the New Testament, um, believers, in a sense, enjoy a perpetual Sabbath rest. We have entered God's rest. We have ceased to try to work our way into the presence of the Lord. We know we can't do it. Our works uh, could never make us holy. But because of Jesus, we rest from our dead works, knowing that we're made holy through the blood of Christ. And even as Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, enjoying God's rest, we are spiritually united with him, enjoying a Sabbath rest. So then the question becomes, does that mean, you know, like, okay, awesome. We're, we, ha- we have ceased to, to work, to enter this rest, to be holy. So now does that mean that we just go, 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 go 24 hours a day, uh, you know, no sleep, nonstop, uh, church gatherings, small groups, discipleships, meetings, teachings, chores, families, exercise. I mean, should you get as little sleep as possible to maximize the productivity in your day because we're free from the Sabbath? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. We, we know from Colossians 2, 16 and 17, it says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So we know that we are not bound to keep the Sabbath in the sense that they were in this text. And yet, isn't there um, a, a principle from the Sabbath that we could learn from? Isn't there a principle from the Sabbath that we have learned from? If we have ceased striving to enter God's rest by trusting in Jesus for spiritual rest, so also at times we cease striving in all our labors 
by trusting Jesus for physical rest. Have you ever thought about that? Rest, when we rest, when we stop our work to rest, we are saying, God, I trust you more than I trust my own work. And that is so hard for us to do. We don't like that idea. But we say, God, I trust you more than I trust my own work. And so we take time, we set aside time for greater devotion to the Lord, for time of rest, for coffee on a beautiful day in Portland, reading the word or a walk or time with family that's just celebrating all the redemptive acts of God. It looks different for people. You know, for all of us, it looks different. But to take that time to breathe, to enjoy the Lord, to say, God, I trust you, just like I trust Jesus for my spiritual salvation, so I trust you even now for physical rest. And we rest. And the Sabbath principle built into this text in the Exodus surely says that there is no work so important that you are doing for God that you don't have time to rest. They're building the stinking tabernacle. This is going to be God's house. And the first thing they have to know that they have to do is keep Sabbath. They have to rest because God will make them holy. And so it doesn't matter if you are doing God's work, if you are uh, if you are doing, you know, if you feel like I have to meet with this person, I have to be at this thing, I have to do that. No, you need to rest and trust and then go back into that work, that work of God that, you know, reinvigorated with his spirit and his presence. So what is it today that you need to rest from to express your devotion to God and your trust in him? I know, there you go, three verses, 18 minutes. Okay, so the next step, so keep that. I think that's a big one for us. I think that's a big one for me. The next step, though, in preparation for God's presence is to gather all the necessary materials and the skillful builders to build the tabernacle. I'm not going to read this because we went through it in our text, but in Exodus 35, um, 4, Moses gathers all the people and asks them to um, contribute materials to his work, uh, to the work of the tabernacle. And then in Exodus 35, um, all the people of Israel are supposed to um, uh, contribute of their own skills, their labor. So we're talking, we're talking essentially in our terms, money and time, right? And then something amazing happens. Uh, uh, and if you'll notice it as we did observations. But in 35 going into 36, we see the people's hearts moved by God. They, they are so moved by God. Their hearts are so changed that they begin to give lavishly to the, to the, the purposes of, of the tabernacle, to God's purposes. They're giving of their money. They're giving of their time. They're giving of their energy. They're giving so much that Moses finally has to tell them, you cannot give any more. In fact, can you, um, the text says, uh, they, he had to restrain them. In verse, uh, Mary Alice is looking at me like you said. So Exodus 36, 6, it says that he actually had to restrain them. Now you need to understand this in, in present day idea because this is so unique. This is kind of so crazy. Have you ever seen or could you even imagine a pastor getting up to a congregation and saying, listen guys, you are simply giving too much. 
you have given so cheerfully and joyfully from hearts moved by God's grace that I am just going to have to physically restrain you from giving any more. Adrian's smiling because she's like, ain't never going to happen. It's never going to happen. That doesn't happen. So, so this is a very unique account. What, what can account for this change in the Israelites? Because let's be honest, they don't have a track record of like loving God and obeying God and giving lavishly to God. That's not really their MO. So what can account for such lavish giving? Well, again, this is where context makes such a difference. Remember, we just came off the heels of the covenant renewal, where they experience after their deepest sin, after really, in many ways, it's like another fall of humanity, right? They experience God's lavish mercy and grace and compassion. He should have killed them all and started from scratch, but he didn't. There was judgment, but there was repentance, and then he renews the covenant, And in response to his grace and his mercy, the people are moved to give to God's purposes. Not to atone for the golden calf incident. There's not, there there wasn't enough materials in the world to atone for that. They couldn't make up for that. God already dealt with that. But here in response to his mercy and his grace, they give out of hearts um, that have been captivated by by generosity, that have been moved by God's grace. And I think, a, I think an application for us, or at least an implication for us, on this side of the cross, is if those of us who have received Jesus, we have, we have, we have been given the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have been given everything, right? God did not withhold his very own son but graciously, he gave him to himself. And now how often, you know, Romans 8 will graciously give us all things. I mean, God has given us the very greatest gift in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in response to God's grace in the gospel, I think we should be the most generous people of all. I love the example of the Israelites. And yet I think, man, they don't even know how merciful God really is. They don't even know the full story. They don't even know that he's going to send his very son for um, idolaters like us. But we do know that. On this side of the cross, we do know that he has given us everything. And so how could we not become the most generous, uh, giving people of all? I, I think a really practical way to think through this is, is, you know, to ask yourself, am I, a gener- am I being generous? Am I responding to the gospel with generosity in my finances and in my time and in my resources? Is to, to practically look at two things. Your budget, or if you don't do a budget, which we all should, the bank account, and your time, your calendar. Truly, I mean, at the end of the day, as we respond to God's generosity, there is kind of a concrete application. You know, it's not just like, wow, the gospel should make us generous. No, it should actually make us generous with our finances and our time. And so a really practical way to see um, 
if the gospel is affecting your heart in this way, is to open up your calendar and to open up your bank account and to look at that and say, how am I spending my time and how am I spending my money? How am I spending my time and how am I spending my money? I mean, that is honestly a very concrete way to understand, am I, a gener- am I a moved by God's grace unto generosity? And lest any of you feel uncomfortable right now, it's like everything's fine until someone starts talking about like finances and time. She's being kind of legalistic up there. Uh, this is not some legalistic demand. And in fact, this text is not about the, really, at the end of the day, about the amount they give. The emphasis from the repetition is clearly communicating that it's about hearts that have been changed by grace. So I'm not saying go home and look at your calendar and your bank account so you can feel guilty. I'm saying your calendar and your bank account are going to be a thermometer of your heart. It's going to gauge, it's going to be like a gauge for your heart. Rather than trying to search your heart, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do, you can look at your calendar and bank account and you can get a pretty rough idea of where your heart's at. And that's what God's concerned about. That's what this text is concerned about. He wants our hearts. And if our hearts have been moved by his grace, then it should be reflected in our calendar and our bank account. And so we see a people just incredibly moved by uh, God's lavish grace. But it doesn't stop just with their giving of time and resources. It moves on to their total obedience. That's the second point there, is their obedience. And it covers chapter 36, 8 through 40, 33. So it covers almost 4.5 chapters. But I'm going to make this real quick because it's communicating one point, And that's the idea of their total obedience. The reason, um, if you notice when you read the rest of these chapters, it's almost a word-for-word record of the fulfillment of the instructions that had been previously given to Moses on his first day during the mountain. So if you felt like, gosh, it seems like I've read this before, you have. So why is he repeating it again? Because the people forgot or because God thought, oh, I need to make sure and give this to him twice. No, something bigger is being communicated here. By doing this, by by having this word-for-word account of the almost the exact same instructions, it's showing us this time that um, the people are obeying God down to the very letter. They obey him in every single command. Every single command. That's why it keeps saying, just as the Lord commanded, just as the Lord commanded, just as the Lord commanded. Yes, we've already read these instructions, but now the people are doing something that should shock us. They're obeying just as the Lord commanded. And so we get to chapter um, 40, verses 1 through 33, and we, right before that, Moses approves everything, uh, blesses the people, and then it, outlo- it outlines how Moses ass- assembles the tabernacle just as the Lord commanded. Seven times. Seven times that's repeated. And those four chapters of the people doing all the work, that's repetition showing us the people obeyed perfectly and Moses obeyed perfectly. And now everything, the the stage is set for the presence of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord to fill the tabernacle. Now this is really interesting 
Because this is their high point, right? It's beautiful. I think we should sit in it. I think we can learn from the Israelites here. I, I, I know we give them a bad rap, and we're going to get to that. But I think there is something to learn here. They do obey, and it's beautiful, and it's real, and it's moving. And surely there is an example for us in it. Of course there's an example for us in it. But it is the high point, and eventually it's going to be the low. You know, it, it's like, I'll just say this real quick. When I was thinking of this story, I was like, this is so much like my volleyball career. And if you're like, if you know me and you think, Whitney, I didn't even know you played volleyball. Exactly. <laughs> so this is a whole lot like that. I, had, I, I played in junior high and freshman, and I was decent. I was okay. I was tall. Nothing special. Kind of like the, uh, the Israelites in the wilderness, you know, just mm, not so great. But then I had this one game my sophomore year, and it was like something overcame me. And I don't even know what happened. It was like we were playing our rivals, and all of a sudden I was like, blocking and hitting and spiking. I had ups. It was like I was stepped outside of myself and I was like, what's happening? I mean, it was amazing. And everyone's like, good job, Winnie, good job. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in my head, I'm like, I seriously have no idea what's going on. But it was amazing. I executed. I was like executing the blocks and I was up front hitting. I was stepping back and passing. I was moving. I was jumping. The coach didn't even sub me out for the starter. I was like, Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was real. It was a real moment. I had this killer game. I was like crushing it. And then on the last hit, I jumped up, uh, broke my finger, uh, was out for the rest of the season, and, you know, got totally deconditioned, and then I eventually just stopped playing volleyball. Okay? This is kind of like the Israelite story. They crush it here. They really do obey. Like, they didn't before, and they're not going to after. But they really like something, you know, in response to God's grace, they obey God's commands and they kill it. And it's awesome. But much like my volleyball career, this is their high point, And it's going to kind of spiral downward from here to such a way that when we think of the Israelites, we never think of them crushing obedience, do we? No, no. It's a thing of the past. So when we apply this text, and I, and I am finishing up, when we apply this text... We do want to learn from them, but we can't say obey. You know, we can't simply say be like the Israelites and obey because we do know the outcome. Ultimately, they don't obey. Ultimately, they make it into the land, but they don't obey God's commands. They reject God's commands. They disobey so bad, so chronically, that they end up in exile. They they get a temple after the tabernacle, but then even that's destroyed because their disobedience. And then they come back into the land and they rebuild the temple, but they're still disobeying. And so it's, it's not until Jesus comes on the scene and, and, and he comes and lives as the true son of God, the true Israel, and perfectly obeys every single command. I keep thinking of that refrain, just as the Lord commanded, just as the Lord commanded, just as the Lord commanded. Jesus obeyed in every tiny detail, just as the Lord commanded. And then he died in our place, he died for disobedient idolaters and then rose from the dead and sent the Spirit so that we might become now the, the, the um, temple. We are the tabernacle, the temple of God. God's Spirit resides in believers in such a way that we are now the, the dwelling place of the living God. 
And God does call us to holy obedience. But it's, it's, again, through the cross. It's not be like the Israelites and obey. This is how we obey. Because Jesus obeyed for us, now we live in submission to the Father by the power of the Spirit. We appreciate that the Israelites were obedient, but we know that just like them at the end of the day, we can't ultimately be totally obedient. So then Jesus died, we accept Jesus, and now we obey because he obeyed on our behalf first and because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. We have the fulfillment of the new covenant promises, the Holy Spirit who's going to help us obey. We have the church of God who can help us obey. We have other believers who can help us obey. We have, uh, you know, the, the full scriptures uh, telling us about Jesus to help us obey. So this text is calling us, I believe, an application of this text is calling us to obedience. But if we don't kind of get it right, the order of it, the logical order of it, that we have to first go through Jesus' work and rely on the Spirit, then we are going to end up so defeated because we can't be just like the Israelites in this passage forever. We might be able to obey perfectly for a day, but not forever. We need Jesus. We need Jesus's people and we need this indwelling spirit to help us obey. So today I would just ask in closing, what is it that God is calling you to obey in that, that, um, you need, you know, the help of the Spirit. You need the help of God's people. You need the help of the church. You might need to talk to one of your table leaders or talk to a pastor. Obedience is important. And in, even in a Christ-centered movement, I never want to miss that. Holy living is incredibly important. Uh, even in the New Testament, it says, be holy as God is holy. But we do it through the help of the Spirit because of what Jesus did for us in submission to the Father with the help of the church and other believers. So what today do you need to be obedient in? And how, ask yourself then, how, how can the Spirit help me in this? How can God's people help me in this? How does Jesus' obedience model this for me? How does the Israelites' example, yes, instruct me, but now I have greater power than they had because I have the Spirit of God and the people of God. So what do you need to do today to walk in obedience to God's word. Okay, so that is, that is Exodus 35 through 40. Uh, at the end, uh, in next week or whenever it's next, we get the filling of the temple uh, tabernacle. So it's going to be glorious. But let, I'll just leave you with that today. I'm going to pray quickly and we'll be done. Father, we thank you for your perfect plan. We thank you that your plan can never be thwarted, that your purposes can never be um, uh, uh, changed, Lord. We know that what you decree, you do. And so we praise you, God, for being a covenantal God, for being a merciful God, for being a gracious God. Lord, we especially thank and praise you that on this side of the cross, we have seen the full extent of your mercy in Jesus Christ, and we rejoice in that. God, we are not preparing for your presence the way the Israelites were. We now have your indwelling presence through the Spirit. And so, God, we pray that he would help us obey your word, obey your commands. I pray we'd be quick, God, to rest when you call us to rest, Lord, to give when you call us to give, and, that, uh, and to obey and, and to go get help from other people and from your Spirit and from your word when, when we're struggling to obey, but you're calling us to obedience. Lord, I pray that you would change us and transform us as the people of God, as your very dwelling place. 
Jesus, we thank you for making all of this possible, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.